I was telling Ryan's parents in sixth grade, there is no way I was going to get on a stage and talk to a bunch of strangers. Um, but they did a great job. And uh, if you're new to CrossFit, my name is Brad Jackson, the senior pastor here, and we're honored to have you here. And uh, we love our kids. We love kids and students, and we want to pour into them. So hopefully that gives you a little glimpse of our heart. Real quickly before we jump into the word, uh, another sort of life of the church thing. In your bulletin is this thing called The Tidings, our monthly publication. And in that is a little article on stewardship. And I just want to give a quick overview to that real quickly. Um, Crossview is in one of those really good financial places. Um, not, not great, but really good. And uh, it's often in those places that we need to talk well about money and how we steward and all of that. So we put together a little article in there that encourages you to think about what God might have for you next. Um, if anything, probably for a few years now, we've sort of been in holding pattern, budget-wise type of thing. And uh, we, not, we don't think that's what God has for the church. Um, we think the church is the hope of the world, and we want to make a difference in Mankato and around the world. And part of that is us together saying, what does God have for our time and our talents and our treasure? So please read that and prayerfully consider if God would maybe have you go to an, a deeper level of stewardship. Let me pray. Father, as we get into the Word, I pray that your Spirit would speak. And uh, God, allow me to get out of the way so that we can hear who you are, what you've done, and how you want to work through us as individuals and through us as a community. Do this to the glory of your name. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. We are in a year-long series that we started at the beginning of September and go through the end of August. We're calling it the Wayfinding Series because we're using this Bible called the Wayfinding Bible. And our goal is to get this big picture understanding of what God's story is all about. So we're still in the Old Testament and we are in a text, Isaiah 11 this morning, which is often a text that's used during Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, because it's what's called a messianic prophecy text that is pointing towards Jesus Christ. But it's an important text for us to use to think about what does it mean for us here and now today to really understand what God is about and follow him. So let's read down through it. Isaiah 11 will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to it. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1, Jesse's family. Jesse is not a name we often see in the Old Testament. It's simply King David's dad. So Jesse's family is like a tree that has been cut down. A new little tree will grow from its stump, and its roots, a branch, will grow and produce fruit. The idea is we start off this imagery, and we're going to sort of, this idea is going to get bigger and bigger, but Israel right now, probably 6th century BC, they're in a bad place. Either the Assyrians or Babylonians have destroyed them. It seems like there's no hope, and so the image is they're like a tree that's been cut down. And originally you'd say a cut down tree, no hope, but there's, there's going to be something little that will begin to grow out of that. And that's what this whole chapter is all about. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on the branch. And you will see time and time again in Isaiah 11 that imagery and ideas that ultimately point towards Jesus Christ. That the spirit of the Lord was on Jesus when he was baptized. And we're seeing some of that language in this prophetic text here. The Spirit will help him be wise in understanding. The Spirit will help him make wise plans and carry, carry them out. The Spirit will help him know the Lord and have a deep respect for him. As you saw last week, the Kara told us Israel has had a long list of spiritually bankrupt kings. And now there's this hope for and now a promise that there will one day eventually come a king that is spiritually connected, that leads from following God. Verse 3, the branch 
Back to the branch. Verse 1, the branch will take the light and respecting the Lord. He will not judge things only by the way they look. He won't make decisions based simply on what people say. He will always do what is right. When he judges those who are in need, he will be completely fair. When he makes decisions about poor people. It was a true king was one who actually cared for people on the fringes. Back in Isaiah 1, we find out this strong word from God through the prophet Isaiah to Israel because they weren't caring for the people on the fringes, for the orphan and the widow. And now we find out a good king, an ideal king, a true king actually cares for people who maybe don't have a lot. Keep reading. When he commands that people be punished, it will happen. When he orders that evil people be put to death will take place. He will put on godliness as if it were his belt. He'll wear faithfulness around his waist. And then listen to some of this language. It, it, it sort of makes us think about God's ultimate reality when everything is made right again. Verse 6. Wolves will lie with lambs. Leopards will lie down with goats. Calves and lions will eat together. And little children will lead them around. Cows will eat with bears, their little ones will lie down together, and lions will eat straw like oxen. A baby will play near a, a hole where a cobra lives. A young child will put its hand into the nest where poisonous snakes live. None of those animals will harm or destroy anything or anyone in the holy mountain of Zion. The oceans are full of water in the same way the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It's painting this ultimate ideal, not just, it's talking about a king, this ideal king that will rule in a way that's completely right, but it's also talking about a kingdom where everything is good. And everything is right. And if you were in the 6th century and you were reading Isaiah, this text here, you were, you were hearing it read, you would hope for something immediately, right? You would hope for this ideal king and this ideal kingdom to happen immediately because you are in a really bad place, the stump that has been cut down. But we also know as we read it now that this language and what it's pointing towards is ultimately Jesus Christ. That there's an ultimate reality that's being talked about here. Verse 10. At that time, here is what the man who is called the root of Jesse, I'm going to come back to that in one second, the root of Jesse will do. It brings us back to the language of verse 1, the stump that's been cut down, but there's this root that will begin to grow up. He will be like a banner that brings nations together. They will come to him, and the place where he rules will be glorious. At that time, the Lord will reach out his hand, and he will gather his people a second time. That second time is probably referring back to the exodus that we read about a couple of months ago, where God delivered his people from Egypt. Keep reading, he will bring back those who are left alive. He will bring them back from Assyria, Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, and Cush. He will bring them from Elon, Babylon, and Hamath. He will bring them from the islands of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, real quickly, back to that language, the root of Jesse, that there's still some hope that there's a king that could possibly come in this kingdom that will look and be right. And that language is used time and time again in Isaiah. We find it again in Isaiah 53, one of the most famous, famous passages pointing towards the Messiah. That there's this deep down desire for this, this king that will rule in a way that their kings had not been ruling. And Israel is in this place where that's all they hope for. A king that will lead us, a king that will produce the way that God wants for us. It's interesting. Isaiah 11 verse 10 is repeated in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says this, And Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will grow up quickly and rule over all the nations. The Gentiles will put their hope in him. That this prophecy, Isaiah 11, ultimately pointing towards Jesus, 
is not just for Israel, it's for all the nations. This king is not just for Israel. This is a king that will bring hope and justice and peace to all the nations. Keep reading verse 12. And he will lift up a banner. He'll show the nations that he was gathering the people of Israel. He'll bring back those who've been taken away as prisoners. He'll bring together the scattered people of Judah. He'll bring them back from all four directions. Ephraim's people won't be jealous anymore. Judah's attackers will be destroyed. Ephraim won't be jealous of Judah. And Judah won't attack Ephraim. Basically saying all that, that war that's going on amongst Israel, it's not going to be happening. Things will be right. Relationships will be restored. Together they will rush down the slopes of Philistia to, to the west. They'll take what belongs to the people of the east. They'll take over Edom and Moab. The people of Ammon will be under their control. And all of this language, by the way, is that the enemies, enemies will be put down. Things will be made right. Verse 15, the Lord will dry up the Red Sea in Egypt. And if you are an Israelite, that's your core story. The Exodus is the story that, that, that sort of everything for them hinged on, that their God was a God that delivered even when things were bad. Even when things were ultimately bad, when you've been destroyed by Assyria or Babylon, God can still deliver you. By his power, he'll send a burning wind to sweep over the Euphrates River, he'll break it up into many streams. Then people will be able to cross it wearing sandals. There was a road the people of Israel used when they came up from Egypt. In the same way, there will be a wide road coming out of Assyria. It will be used by the Lord's people who are left alive there. Isaiah 11 is simply about an ideal king an ideal kingdom. That's what this whole of this text is about, that Israel had had ruler after a ruler who was spiritually bankrupt, and all they want for is a king that rules in the way that a king should. And so we're in the 6th century. That's when this is being written. Isaiah is a prophet in the king's court, and these are the words that he is bringing to this nation that has been destroyed. Destroyed to the point where it almost seems as though there's no hope. And he says, in the midst of these nations around you, conquering you, there is actually hope. And there's a reality that will become true, that words of hope in places of desolation are exactly what they needed. Something to cling to. That there would be a better time. That there would be the rule of a great king, an ultimate Messiah. And Messiah simply means deliverer. And it's interesting, the text tells us what this king will be like. Listen to some of the language that we just read. Be born of the line of David or of Jesse. He would possess God's very spirit and gifts. He would judge as God judged with fairness and justice and impartiality. He'd be faithful to the law and he would live right before God's eyes. Under his rule, the kingdom would be present. It would be an actuality. People would live, all of people would live together in peace, in ultimate shalom. Strife and war would end. The reputation of Israel's God would extend to all the corners of the earth. That's what this kingdom looks like. That's the way this king is ruling. The prophet is painting the picture of this ideal king. This righteous ruler who would rule with justice and peace hand in hand in the power of God's spirit. They hope for a king. They hope for a kingdom. I think we, even though we don't use king and kingdom language, but I think we hope for the same thing. 
We hold for the ultimate reality of God. And so what I want to do in these last 10 minutes or so before we go to the Lord's Supper, to the Eucharist, is to talk about the idea of a king and a kingdom. Because that's what this text, that's what Isaiah 11 is all about. But it's language we don't use too often. You're not calling somebody king unless you're doing it in a mocking way throughout the week. We don't talk about kingdoms, but I think it's something that not only can we understand, but I think it's something that as followers of Jesus, we have to understand. It's critical. So first thing is this. And this should be the the thing that should make us understand why we talk about it. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything. And for all of us, that should be like a little, huh. If Jesus talked about it all the time, we should talk about it a lot, right? Can we agree on that? It's interesting. Mark 1, 14 and 15, the uh, the first recorded words we have of Jesus, he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Acts chapter 1, shortly before Jesus has died, he's risen again, and he's hanging out with his disciples for 40 days before he's going to leave them for good. What does he talk about? The kingdom of God. That's what Acts said. For 40 days, he talked about the kingdom of God before he goes away. And so for us, that should be this, okay, this is deeply, deeply important. Gordon Fee, one of the wisest evangelical New Testament scholars of our time, here's what he said in a lecture. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Strong language, right? But if Jesus talked about it more than anything, it becomes critical and crucial that it is normal language that we talk about. It was what Jesus talked about. He talked about, he described it. He talked about what it looked like to enter into the kingdom of God. He talked about what followers of Jesus look like living out the kingdom of God. Here's what a Jesus follower who's living in the kingdom, here's what they actually look like. Jesus talked about it more than anything. Second thing is this. So what is a kingdom? Really practically, in the most basic sense, all a kingdom is, it's a sphere in which there is a ruler reign going on. Somebody is ruling, somebody is reigning. That's the reality of a kingdom. And I think we get that. I think if we talk about kingdom and the idea of ruling or reigning, some, some place, some sphere, some, something that somebody is in charge of, that makes sense in our minds. Because we, we know that. We know the kingdoms around us. We know the kingdoms of our lives, the kingdoms of our hearts, the places where maybe we're in charge. We know that there are kingdoms of this world, right? We're bombarded with the message of the kingdom of consumerism. In that kingdom, if you get more and more and more, you'll be happy. It's, it's a king that wants to be in charge. And we could list a ton of other kingdoms. So we, we get that. Like there, there's actually this idea that if I live under this way that I will be happy. And, and, and we know that's not true. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its most basic place is the place where God is at rule. The place where God is reigning. The place where the authority of God is being played out. And here's the challenge. For a lot of us, when we hear about the kingdom of God, we think about some future reality. It's heaven, it's, it's something way out there that, that maybe we'll see someday. But 
I think we need to understand that it is both future and it is here and now. It is a future reality and it's a present reality. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking, and we saw it in the language of Isaiah 11, that there's this place where things are ultimately, right, where lions and lambs are laying down together. If you've been around Crossview much, you hear me talk about Revelation 21 all the time. It's a text we should have memorized where Revelation 21, 1 through 5, it talks about that God comes down to be with his people, that there's this new heavens and new earth, that the ultimate heaven is not something you go to. It's this made right again. It's the recreation of all things. When God is with his people, when the new Jerusalem has come down. And the description in Revelation 21 is there is no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Like things are good. Relationships are right. That is the ultimate kingdom of God when God is in charge and things are ultimately good and right. But the kingdom of God is also present. It's a reality in the here and now. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking that God would use his authority in the world now so that his will can be played out. That's what we, every, every time we do the Lord's Prayer, and we do it every, uh, the first Sunday of every month, and other times, but we, we say it once a month at least, that we are praying that God's rule would be present here and now. In Colossians 1.13, Paul teaches that redemption, being made right with God, amounts to an exchange of rulers over our lives. Who's in charge of my life? It says in that passage, from the authority of darkness, that God has transferred us from the authority of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the New Testament talks, yes, future kingdom, things are right, things are good, but also that very kingdom being lived out through followers of Jesus in the here and now. God's rule, God's authority, God's dominion in the present. So the last piece is this. And this is the place I really believe we need to sit with. In this kingdom, Jesus is king. In this kingdom, Jesus is king. Every time in your Bible you see Jesus Christ, it literally should read King Jesus. Christos means king. In this kingdom, Jesus is king. Because every kingdom needs a king. Every kingdom has to have somebody that's actually in charge of it. In our text, Isaiah 11 is painting this beautiful kingdom where God is king. And now we see in the New Testament, God revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to be king. One of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, in defining what the gospel is, he says it's this. Trusting Jesus and living in the fullness of the kingdom now. Trusting Jesus and living in the fullness of the kingdom now. And I don't know about you, the challenging part of that is when we hear about the kingdom, I want that. Like, I, I want a world where relationships are right. I want a world where things just look really good. But trusting Jesus is the hard part. Because trusting Jesus implies I stop trusting myself. Trusting Jesus implies that I stop trusting any of the kingdoms of the world. That I actually place my full hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is king, I think, is the most important thing. Because we have to get to know our king. And the king, King Jesus, is very different than us as king or any of the kingdoms around us. 
It's hard to see past all the kings around us to what this true King Jesus really is like. You see, King Jesus is like the principal who goes into the lunchroom in the elementary school and sees that one kid sitting all alone and goes and has lunch with him. You see, King Jesus is like the CEO who keeps hiring people who are working their way through sobriety because they need a chance. This king is very different. We have to get our minds around that. We have to get to know our king. So I want to give you some homework. Between now and Easter, between now and Easter, I challenge everyone in this room to get to know your king by reading one of the Gospels. Just read one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they're all what we call biographies about Jesus. Because we cannot live out the kingdom of God. I cannot trust Jesus and live in the fullness of the kingdom now if I don't know my king. Take a gospel. If you don't like reading, read Mark. It's the shortest gospel. If you love reading, have fun with Matthew. But get to know your king. And here's what's going to happen. This is going to be really cool. As you get to know your king, you'll begin to imagine what life in the kingdom of God is about. Your whole life. Your whole life in the kingdom of God with Jesus as king. You'll begin to imagine it. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, talks about this future but yet fully present kingdom. And the language is so beautiful that I want to close with it. It'll be on the screen or you can close your eyes and listen to it. He says about this kingdom and how we live in this kingdom. He says, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on, on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. This is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit means that we do in Christ and by the Spirit and the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. That's what the kingdom of God begins to look like as we live trusting Jesus in that kingdom fully now.